The liking gap is the situation where you interact with somebody else and you think that they liked you less than they actually did like you. So it's the gap between our perception of how much somebody else liked us and the reality. And that gap is not random. It's a systematic gap where we tend to underestimate how much other people like us. Welcome to Wellbeings, the podcast that keeps you cool, calm, and connected with your host, Dominic Bowden. Welcome to Wellbeings. I'm Dominic Bowden for what I think is a really special episode of the show. Christmas, of course, is nearly here. And for me, man, I think we all just really need this, this coming back together. Of course, down this side of the world, it's summer, the warmth, the good food, some good laughs, uh, and just spending time with the people that are the most important to us. But man, sometimes it can be prickly. Family dynamics or just being in those social gatherings again, talking with people we don't know as well or haven't seen for a long time. I don't know, it can be a little overwhelming, especially since we're kind of out of the habit. I have most definitely, even recently, walked away from conversations thinking, I can't believe I just said that. I talked too much. I didn't talk enough. That person must be like, what an idiot. Well, the truth is, I'm probably reading the whole thing wrong. Today's guest is here to help. If you've ever felt ineffective, invisible, or inarticulate, chances are you weren't actually any of those things. Those feelings may instead have been the result of a lack of awareness that we all seem to have for how our words, our actions, and even our mere presence can affect other people. Today we are talking to Professor Vanessa Bonds. She's a social psychologist, an award-winning researcher, and teacher at Cornell University in the United States. And we're talking on her book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and why it matters. I gotta say, I just love Vanessa's point of view and just the stories, her research, and how she kind of gets us to flip that internal script as to what influence actually means in our life. It's just a super positive message, certainly for this time of year, when, I don't know, we all feel just that little bit tweaked right now. Now, if this is your first time listening to Wellbeings, welcome to the show. We'd love for you to subscribe and connect with us. It would mean a lot. But right now, let's get into it and find out just how much more influential we are than we think and how we can help use that knowledge to our benefit. But just before we start. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. And I want to say, I just didn't know what I didn't know when it comes to this book, but this is such a fantastic read. So congratulations on, on the release of the book, which I know happened at the end of last year. I think we have got influence so wrong. I mean, when I think influence, I think it's some sort of a Wolf of Wall Street, sell me this pen type idea, but it is so much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's so true. First of all, thank you. And thanks for the kind words about the book. But um, I 100% 
agree with that. I think we have this way of thinking about influence where it's very formal. You know, it's like this time I'm attempting to get you to do something or think something, often something completely the opposite of what you want or what you already think. Um, But the way that I tend to think of influence and really the way that psychologists define influence is anything we do that impacts another person, that changes the way they think or feel. And that can be that you convince them to keep doing what they're already doing, right? So you say something and they're like, okay, I'm going to keep doing my thing. And if that's the case, you could have a big impact on that person, but never actually see it. Because if they're just doing what they're ordinarily doing, you would never know that you actually impacted that person. And so there are all sorts of little examples like that where we impact someone and we don't see it because we're thinking influence is all about, you know, selling someone something or standing in front of the room and like making this big formal pitch. What was that seed of, of, of an idea that, that made you kind of go, there's something here that we're not seeing? It came down to this time in grad school where I had to ask people for, uh, to complete surveys for a study I was running. And in my head, it was just the worst experience having to ask people for things. And then the professor I was working with and I, we looked at the data after we had collected these surveys. And he was like, you know, you've been talking about how terrible this experience was, but I'm looking and people actually were super nice to you and really, you know, were happy to help and fill out the survey. And I think that really just drove home this, the difference that we, this sort of way we think about things in our head and how it compares to reality. And I just felt like that was something, it, it was such an aha moment for me that my work has built on that ever since. And I just feel like at this point, knowing that so many other people have had that aha moment in my lab, I definitely wanted to, you know, put that in book form and and put it out to more people. Yeah. And there's something quite powerful about the the good the goodness in it you know the 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 fact that we are as humans we are social animals we want to connect and 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 we just have this this storyline that we make up which is so wrong and 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 I think that the book sends that positive positive message that hey look you know maybe the the world is not as bad nasty negative as as maybe we think it is right yeah yeah, I think that's very true. I, I certainly hope that people take that from it. So with that in mind, why is it so important for us to put some attention on this? Because I think a lot of people out there listening and watching this are kind of going, yeah, well, when am I going to use this? How is it going to make my life fuller and happier? Yeah, I mean, I'd say for one, you know, one of the things that I always notice is that there's so many books and seminars and everything out there on how to gain influence. Like clearly this is something people are seeking, you know, um, and are wishing for in their lives. And one of the big things about my approach and the book comes from my own research, which has shown that we actually have all this influence that over people every day, like we're constantly impacting them. And so I've often wondered, you know, why is it that if we have this constant influence on other people, why are we also gravitating towards these books and like seeking so many self-help books about how to influence people? And one of the conclusions I come to is that we have these psychological biases that make us underestimate our influence and not see all these moments when we do have impact. And so... For one, I think it's important because that's a really reassuring thing, right? If we all want this influence, we think that we don't have it. In fact, we do have it. We just don't always see it 
because it's happening, you know, when we're not there necessarily. Um, the other reason I think that it's really helpful is that I, you know, I often say that we can all think of things that people have said to us in our lives that reverberate in our heads that we, you know, think about all the time and we can kind of trace back that that person may have no recollection of having said. And to sort of flip the script in a way, we do that too. So if we're kind of saying these things that reverberate in other people's heads, we'd want to be aware of that and sort of, you know, take a beat and be a little bit more mindful of the ways that we are impacting other people as well to kind of put good things out into the world. Is, is that the biggest problem is how much we are in our head, you know, like I, I really relate to the whole idea of walking away from a conversation going, oh, why did I say that? You know, I can't believe I did that. And you're so focused on what you said, but the other person's experience of that interaction is just so fundamentally different, right? Yeah. And so this is something that actually one of my colleagues, Erica Boothby, uh, who's a psychologist who I've worked with, uh, she has tested this in, in, empirically and done experiments actually showing people that essentially all of those kinds of feelings that we have after we interact with someone or, you know, after we have a conversation and we're like, oh my God, why did I say that? You know, I, I feel so stupid. I didn't ask enough questions or I talked too much. You know, we all kind of drive ourselves crazy doing this analysis of all the things that we did wrong. Um, and she shows that really we all feel that way and we're all wrong about it, right? We're all overestimating how much other people are judging us and how negatively other people are judging us. And so she does these studies where she ha brings people together and they're typically strangers and they have this interaction and they have a conversation where they, you know, they ask each other some typical questions that you might ask of someone you're meeting for the first time. And then she separates them and says, you know, how much do you think the other person enjoyed that conversation? How much do you think the other person liked you and would want to hang out with you. And then she asked, how much would you want to hang out with that other person? How much did you like that conversation? And when she looks at people's responses on both of those items, she finds that most people say like, I really liked that person. I really enjoyed the conversation, but I don't know if they liked me that much. You know, I don't know if they enjoyed the conversation. And so we underestimate how much other people wind up liking us. Why do we do that? You know, why, why do we fundamentally lack that confidence? So there's something called negativity bias, which is essentially the tendency for negative things to loom so much larger than positive things. Um, there's even this finding in romantic relationships that you want five positive things to every one negative thing because the negative is just so strong. It's what we remember. You know, you get five positive things, you still focus on that one negative thing, right? And so the same thing happens when we're doing the sort of postmortem on ourselves and we're sort of judging ourselves through someone else's eyes. We're focusing on these nitty gritty little things that we know we said a little bit wrong. But the other person is just focusing on this like broad sense of us. They're kind of walking away with this general warm feeling of, I had a nice conversation. You know, they're not picking apart every little detail that happened. And, and I think one of the things that landed on me was the idea that you don't know how important you are to a social group or you don't know how much influence you have even on your close friends. You may think you're on the outer when really you're you're super central to the community that you're in. Yeah, I love this work. It's um we kind of informally refer to it as uh, everybody's hanging out without me. Um, and it's by Sebastian Derry, who's uh, a colleague of mine here, a psychologist who ran these studies. 
asking people basically whether they thought that they were central to their friend groups compared to the average person completing the survey that he was giving to people, um, how much they thought they went out compared to other people taking the survey, how many friends they thought they had compared to other people, you know, taking the survey, all these questions that get at, you know, how social and active and central you are to your social network. And what he found was that the average person thought that they were less social and less socially active than the average person, which of course is a fallacy, right? That can't be true. And that suggests that there's a bias going on, that people are uh, misinterpreting or have this this kind of um, misguided sense of where they really fit in their sociability. So we're home, you know, we're on the couch, flipping through our Instagram, looking at all the things other people are doing, feeling like, oh my gosh, everybody's doing things. And forgetting that, you know, there's lots of people on the couch just like us flipping through, mm. but we're not seeing them. So we don't really compare ourselves to them. I, I think that the idea of being liked has taken on so much more meaning in the last, say, 10 years. And you, you do mention uh, social media, and, and I think it has a big part to play. The idea of being validated through clicks and views and engagement, it's overwhelming, you know, and then we've got the last two years and we're not seeing as much people as we used to. And, and, and the idea of that we are more liked than we think we are, right? I'd love for you to sort of just take us through the liking gap and exactly why we, we, we get ourselves into these positions and into this sort of mindset. Yeah, you know, I do wonder if, you know, over the years this has gotten worse and it would make sense to me if that was true because as people say, you know, we are comparing our insides and what we know about ourselves to other people's outsides, right? So another way that I love talking about this is that we compare our Google searches to other people's Facebook posts. So it's like, you know, I'm searching for like whatever weird fungus is on my foot. And then, uh, you know, I'm seeing like other people posting about their amazing party that they just had. Um, And so I think we do, you know, we see these curated, filtered versions of other people's lives that look so wonderful and everyone's happy and smiling and look like they're having fun and like everyone's hanging out, you know. And we don't see all the other stuff. We don't see other people's Google searches. We don't see them at home alone doing the same thing as us. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that has indeed sort of exacerbated things over the years. Um, Because one of the phenomena, one of the explanations for this phenomenon, right, is that we judge ourselves based on comparing ourselves to kind of the most social, the most likable people we can think of. So if you ask me like how social am I? How much do I go out? I think of like my friend who's always out. I'm like, well, I'm not like that. So I'm going to sort of discount my sociability. And the more we kind of are exposed to that and assume everybody's more social than they really are because of what they post, uh, I think the more we feel like we're somehow failing socially. There was a great study that was done where they interviewed people on hospice beds. The correlation of answers that came up, but the one that was the most common was, I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. Why do you think fundamentally, you know, human beings tend to go towards the darker side sometimes? You know, I think that we are evolutionarily wired to want people to like us. 
You know, we survived because we were part of a group. Um, you know, there's all these mating needs. There's all these kind of biological pressures that make us want to fit in with the group and not get kicked out of the group. And so we're very vigilant for any little cue that might say like, oh, I'm, I'm losing likability. You know, I may kind of lose my connection with the group to the point where we sort of over-exaggerate how much other people are noticing the same things, right? This vigilance, other people are not engaging in it to the same degree as us. And so another way to sort of think about it is think about like the last time you did make like a major faux pas or even a small faux pas and you felt like everybody was looking at you or the last time, you know, you had a stain or a bad hair day or whatever it might be. You feel like everybody else is noticing that and, you know, using that to judge your character and whether they want to hang out with you and keep you as part of the group. But then if you, you know, ask people to to flip it around and say, think of the last time your friend had a stain on their shirt or had a bad hair day or said something silly. And, you know, many of us can't even remember, right? Or if we do, like, it's usually a funny story or something where we still have this warm impression of the person. We're not judging them negatively for that. Um, But when it's us, we just feel like we overestimate how much other people are judging us and and using that judgment to like really assess us. You talk about the liking gap and and I'd love for you to just to define that for for everyone watching and listening. The liking gap uh, is the situation where you interact with somebody else and you think that they liked you less than they actually did like you. So it's the gap between our perception of how much somebody else liked us uh, and the reality. And that gap is not random. It's, it's a systematic gap where we tend to underestimate how much other people like us. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This research is something that, you know, you've given your life to, you've been working on for the last 15 years. It feels sometimes like we're heading towards some sort of bad Black Mirror episode, right? Where it's just, I think there is one on liking. You you basically get likes and and you need to get to a certain level of influence before you can rent a car or, you know, kind of exist in the modern world. How do you feel about where we're heading? You know, what lane do you fall in? You know, are you optimistic? I, you know, I don't know. I do love that Black Mirror episode with uh, (laughs) Bryce Howard, right, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's scary how much that does seem to capture a lot of the trends that, you know, are happening now. Um, I do think social media is exacerbating it. And, you know, we find a lot of these findings that are very um, reassuring and reassure me and I think reassure a lot of people where people do like you more and people, you know, notice you more and you have more influence. So many of these are about face-to-face interactions for the most part. Most of them have been tested in face-to-face interactions and really rely on that actual in-person connection, which 
leads to this sort of trust that is just not there in the same way when you're talking through like a mediated format on social media or even through like the internet, um, through email and things like that. Um, And so I do think we still need to really maintain a good amount of, you know, face-to-face contact uh, to head in a positive direction and to sort of keep reminding ourselves that, you know, people do leave these interactions, you know, with a positive, warm feeling about us, especially when it's face-to-face and, you know, we feel good and they feel good. And um, we don't always get that feedback when it's through this mediated communication. Well, you're, you're in right now, uh, Cornell University, um, young kids everywhere. What are you seeing, you know, when you're on these campuses? Uh, a, lo- a lot of what you're talking about does feel like that anxiety, that overwhelm, it's prevalent in young people. Uh, what, what are some of the observations you've made just in the environment that you're, you know, living and working in? Yeah, I mean, I do see a lot of that anxiety that, you know, I feel like I'm comparing myself to my peers and always kind of falling behind where I'd like to be. And again, it's not the peers who you would compare favorably to necessarily. It's not the peers who you're pretty close in terms of sociability and attractiveness and, you know, all these other things. It's, you know, the peers who are the most social, the most popular and, you know, you always feel like you're falling short of that. So I definitely see that phenomenon on college campuses. And Sebastian Derry, the researcher, did it here at Cornell, uh, did some of his studies and also did it with older adults um, and, you know, non-student populations. So it did kind of replicate in all these different ways. Um, But yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the last couple of years has just broken my heart for my college students. You know, they've, they've had two years of having until maybe this year, like very little face-to-face contact the way at least university was for me when I went, you know, when there's a lot of interaction right there with your peers and there's so much learning that happens through that and there's so much growth. And they did so much through mediated communication and just couldn't really be together and gather in the same way. And I'm just, I'm nervous about it. I'm hopeful that it's going to go back to, you know, pre-pandemic forms of interaction, but I, it does make me nervous because I, I see a lot more anxiety than I used to. Obviously, you know, listening to you talk, it, it's it's somewhat um, scary. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh my gosh, I can so relate. Like I so do that, you know? So the question is, from all the research that you've done and all the information that you've managed to pull, let's try and give some practical feedback that people can put some focus on. Yeah, I'd say, you know, two of the most powerful, I think, um, ways of finding out sort of what influence you actually have and what other people actually think of you are, first of all, getting out of your own head. Because when we're trapped in our own heads and we're kind of making judgments about ourselves without actually seeing ourselves through other people's eyes, again, you know, we know every little thing we did wrong because we're vigilant for all these kinds of things that we feel like we messed up doing. Um, And we forget what it's like to be on the outside perceiving us and not caring about all that stuff and just feeling, you know, as long as we're being warm and pleasant, like that's all people really care about. Um, And so I'd say practically, there's a few ways to sort of get out of your own head. One is to try to 
and there's different ways to do this. You could try it as like a sort of mental imagery kind of thing where you imagine yourself as a fly on the wall or you imagine yourself as a friend watching something that you did that you're worrying about or feel like you, you know, did wrong or messed up on. Um, another one is a, a writing exercise where you can actually write a few times, you know, even a year will make a difference if you write from other people's eyes or even a neutral third party's eyes, kind of assessing what you did from somebody else's perspective, not your own. In fact, one interesting thing is that one of my colleagues, Eli Finkel, has instructed newlywed couples to do this writing exercise where they have to write about arguments they've had from a third party perspective only three times a year. Um, so only for seven minutes each time. And he, he likes to refer to it as like just 21 minutes in a year, right? They write about this argument that they had recently from the party of just a neutral observer, someone who's not taking sides, you know, someone who's not judging either person necessarily. And just getting that sort of insight, getting out of your own head and taking the perspective of somebody else actually maintain their marital satisfaction uh, over the two years after they were married, which, you know, I hate to break it to you, usually drops like in the two years after people get married. Um, And so part of the reason for that is that you get this perspective, right? You're just, when you're trapped in your own head, you make all sorts of mistakes about the things that you're doing, how people are assessing them and the way that you're impacting other people. Um, I'd say the other thing that I, I find incredibly powerful is testing out a lot of your anxieties. And so... There's two things that we've done studies on where we've sent people out into the world and we've had them either ask for things or give people things. And when we've had them ask people for things, people tell us they hate asking for things. You know, they don't want to ask for favors. Um, They're terrified of going up to people. They really don't want to do this. They don't want to interact with people face to face. And we send them out and have them ask for like small things. Can I borrow your cell phone? Um, Will you fill out the survey? Will you sponsor me for a race? You know, all these kinds of small things. And they find that, first of all, people are much more likely to agree than they expect. Uh, In fact, twice as likely in our studies. They're much more warm and receptive than people tend to think, which is really nice. Um, And the interaction is just, in general, more pleasant. Like, in their heads, it was so painful. But in reality, when they test it out, it's like, oh, actually, that was was okay. And it had a a happy ending. Um, I said, we also have people give things. So we've also had them give people compliments, just random strangers. And something similar happens. In this case, you would think they wouldn't be worried because they're giving something, right? They're giving a compliment. They're not asking anyone for anything. But they still feel nervous about interacting with strangers in person. They think they're going to be awkward and weird and bother the other person. But they go up and they give the person a compliment. And not surprising, the person is quite happy and they have this great interaction and they come back to the lab very happy. Um, So I'd say just testing out these fears uh, can be incredibly illuminating for the better. It's interesting you talk about compliments. I think so many people have a hard time taking one and I'm interested in the science behind that. You know, why is a compliment something that we, we, we find so hard to receive? I think part of it is that we feel embarrassed. So there's work on embarrassment showing that one of the things, you know, we feel embarrassed when we do something that we think is bad, that we think is breaking social norms or people are judging us negatively for. But we also feel embarrassed just by being the center of attention. And so when someone compliments us, it's kind of, it puts us in the spot. We feel like the center of attention. Um, We feel like we need to reciprocate 
we feel like we're almost in someone's debt a little bit. Uh, And so it can feel a little bit awkward, but we actually find that despite that, you know, despite this kind of desire in a little way to like kind of brush it off or reciprocate or something that in the end, it just feels good. Right. So like all those things are true, but then like a second later, you're like, oh, that, you know, I really feel good that that person said that nice thing about me. And the flip side of that also is that anxiety of the ask, you know, and whether it's asking for something that you're assuming is going to be a bad re- result, whether it's a kind of a raise or, or, you know, can I borrow the car or th- things you're almost anticipating that you're going to get let down. Uh, but as you've just sort of said, there is a lot of science behind our, our brains not serving us in, in a good way, you know, kind of leading us down the wrong path, right? Yeah, I'd say, you know, one of the, the biggest misconceptions that I, I usually talk about regarding influence is this idea that other people don't want to help us are kind of resist, are going into an interaction resistant and disagreeable. When in fact, you know, most people want to be agreeable. As I said earlier, you know, we want to um, maintain bonds. We want people to like us. And so part of doing that is if someone asks for our help, we want to say yes. You know, we don't want to be the jerk who says no. And even if we want to say no, it's awkward to say no. Um, You know, if someone is expressing an opinion, we don't want, you know, we might argue in some cases, again, more on social media than in person, actually. Um, But for the most part, even if we disagree with that opinion, if a stranger starts telling us about something, we're usually pretty soft in our uh, counter argument. If we make a counter argument at all. And so when we go into these situations, we expect this disagreeableness, we expect these no's, we expect, you know, people to be annoyed, when in fact, they mostly want to be agreeable and want us to like them. And so we often don't encounter this, this fear we have of uh, the disagreeable kind of person. There's something about us doing positive things, kind things for other for others, knowing that there's there's a chance that we're going to influence them later to either do that kind of behavior to others as well. I think we, we want to be in service. And I think now more than ever, certainly over this last couple of years that we've all been through, it just feels good to do things for other people. Uh, and I think influence is a really powerful part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this goes back to this idea of what influence is. It's not just about selling. It's not just about, you know, changing people's political views or something. It's also just about making people feel different, you know, or potentially think different and not even different, just feel something. And so one of the ways to do that is by giving a kind word that is influencing somebody. And our work shows that we underestimate how much that actually does mean to somebody. You know, we think, oh, it's just a silly little compliment or, you know, if I express how grateful I am for the, what this person has done for me in my life, you know, if I write them a letter, it's going to be so weird or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to know exactly what to say. But in fact, the research shows that when people, you know, open a gratitude letter or hear a compliment, it's so meaningful to them and so much more than we imagine it will be. And so that is one of the major ways I think that we have more influence than we think. And when we feel like, oh, we do want to make a a positive difference, just these simple little positive interactions are one way. I'm interested around how all the studies, I guess, that you've done and the research, how it's showing up for you as a mother, 
you know, as opposed to you know, an, an author uh, and an incredible educator? You know, how when you take off that hat and just sort of go, just me as now as a mother, because there's a lot of, you know, mums out there that are going to be listening and watching this. And so I'm just interested how this research has served, you know, how you show up as a mum. More than I thought when I first started writing the book. Now I think I think about a lot of these things as I am, you know, parenting so much more than I expected. And I often think about how I was as a daughter and then, you know, the ways in which my mom didn't realize the influence she had all the time that, you know, in the moment that she would say something, I would do the kid slash teenager thing and say like, you know, either nothing and pretend I didn't hear her, ignore her, argue against her. But I know that the next day I was thinking about it, you know, maybe a week later I was reflecting on it and it did impact my behavior in some way. And I can now I know sort of from the parent perspective how hard it is to trust that the things that you say are actually getting in there, uh, you know, can become, you know, as we said earlier, like these things that reverberate that actually, you know, impact later on, even if you don't see it right there directly. And so it definitely, you know, makes me hold back when I am tempted to say something over and over and over to get my point across. I, I hold back a little bit more and kind of trust that, okay, they heard it. I can't push until they're willing to acknowledge it because they may not want to acknowledge it, maybe ever, maybe not for years, who knows. Uh, but I said it. I feel like they they probably heard me and now I have to just trust that like that's in there somewhere, uh, you know, uh, and kind of pull back a little bit. For a lot of people, they want the loved ones in their life to, to put more of a focus on their well-being and getting good sleep and eating good food. And, and so I wonder when it comes to wellness practices, you know, what, what, what would be some advice that you would say how to influence someone in your life? You know, there's a great quote, which is like a lot of people just they do not want the unwanted teacher, you know, and it's kind of we, we can sort of preach at someone and tell them, I think you should do this. Why aren't you doing that? But it's about how do we have influence uh, in a positive way that really lands, you know? Yeah. And actually, in the book, I talk about uh, this example where someone wants to influence somebody else to eat healthier and drink more water and do these things that are going to be good for their health. And when these researchers asked people, you know, what's the best way to get someone to do this? Do you want to be super assertive? Or do you want to be sort of more relaxed? And they gave them two options of ways they could talk to somebody else about this. And so one was like, you know, all exclamation points, like, do these things for your health. Like, come on. The kind of thing that many of us experience when we want someone to do something better for their health and we want to just shake them and like make them do it. Um, And the other one was much more gentle. And it was like, you know... One thought is that if you want to do that, you know, you want to improve your health, you could do something like this, you know, a much more gentle approach. And they found that people thought the more assertive approach would be more effective. They just felt like this is like you have to get it in someone's head. When in fact, not surprisingly, the softer approach was actually more effective for people. Um, And so I think to some degree, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before that you need to kind of trust that you've said it. I think it's important to say something, right? And I think people are listening more than we realize and that we are influencing them more than we always realize. Um, But to trust that we've said it, we said it gently and to kind of let it go and hope that it builds and that they're getting those messages from elsewhere too as well. Coming from New Zealand and Australia, 
we're, we're really taught from a young age to have a very low profile. You know, there's this thing called tall poppy, which is they don't want people to think they're too big because then they'll get them to chop down. It's almost in some ways having influence can be a negative uh, in, in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, and it's very different, I think, from the American sensibility. And so if we are trying to have that light approach, trying to land on people uh, where they should start to reposition, when you know we've come from a culture where that's just not something that you know we all do, you know, how do we start as Kiwis and Aussies to sort of uh, grow in this way? Yeah, it's funny because my uh, my husband is Canadian British, um, and they also have the tall poppy saying. <laughs> so I've heard that many times before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually think that. There's so much to be said that is not typically appreciated, particularly in like American culture, I'd say, especially. Um, but I think in many ultra- other cultures as well, of this like softer influence, the influence we get just from modeling things, just from showing up um, and showing our support. So one of the things I talk about is how our idea of influence, right, is like, standing up in front of a room with the PowerPoint and kind of going into our spiel and trying to change people's minds uh, kind of proactively. So you are like that person in front, you know, typical American swagger, like standing in front of the room. But in fact, the people in the audience are influencing the speaker as much as the speaker is influencing them because the speaker also wants to be liked, you know, as much as there's this individualism and like, I'm going to stand up in front and, you know, show my like power and authority and influence. In fact, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be liked by their group. And so a speaker is attending to what the audience is doing. You know, if it looks like you're kind of losing the audience, you change a little bit. If everyone starts nodding to something you say, you lean into that. Maybe you say it again. And research shows that not only do we do this thing, which is called audience tuning, where we uh, tune our message to the audience based on these cues that we're getting that, you know, they agree with something or don't. But then once we do that, there's something called the saying is believing effect. And then once we've stated this thing, assuming that that's what our audience wants to hear, we start to believe it a little more. And so I love this kind of way of thinking because it really shows that influence is a two-way street. That just by sitting there in the audience with a group of other people, you know, just by showing up so that the person sees that you're there and kind of is thinking about, oh, what does this person want to hear? You know, just by subtle cues like nodding along or frowning, you know, you are influencing the message that you're receiving and you're even influencing the messenger. And so I think you don't really need to embrace this kind of tall poppy, like stand in front of the room kind of idea of influence. I think the idea that I really want people to take away is that you do have influence just by doing what you do. And the idea is to become more aware of that, you know, so you can kind of fine tune it. I think we all want to show up uh, as, as good humans. You know, we want to be part of a conversation that moves us all forward, you know? So, you know, like in closing, in writing this book and this experience, you know, what is that message that you really hope lands on people globally uh, that hopefully can, you know, lead us to a place um, that's better than where we are now? There's two things that really stand out that I want people to take away from the book that are 
particularly, you know, important for me. Um, one is a sense of reassurance. You know, as we talked about, so many people, you know, worry about all the things they're doing wrong, feel like they don't have influence, feel like, you know, people maybe are judging them more harshly than they actually are. And so I want people to feel more reassured and not worry so much about those things. And I think that's good for all of our individual mental health. And we don't need to keep chasing these ways to have influence or get people to like us because it's a lot easier and less complicated than we tend to think. So that's one. And then the second piece is a sense of responsibility. So I think, as you said, you know, we want to show up, but sometimes we don't. Um, you know, we, we don't always speak up when we see things that maybe we should speak up for because we feel like we don't have the perfect argument or no one's going to listen to us. And I think kind of understanding that even showing up, even making, you know, a very simple statement, just showing what side you're on, even if you don't have the perfectly articulated argument, that has a big impact. And so I think that we should also feel a sense of responsibility to use that impact and to use it, you know, for good, to to make the world a better place. Amazing book, amazing message. Uh, and I think a real reframe of, of, of a word that we associate uh, in such a different way than maybe we should. Everyone needs to read this book uh, and there's so much that everyone can take away from it. Thank you, Vanessa, so much for doing this. We really appreciate you carving out some time and uh, I hope you have an incredible break. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Well, what an amazing conversation. For more from Vanessa, her writing regularly appears in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And of course, her book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, is out right now. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe. It means a lot. And don't forget to connect with us at wearewellbeings.com and We Are Wellbeings on all your favorite social networks. Thank you so much to everyone that made this show possible, including our producers at Hello Television. And we'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 